so this summer has been definitely one full of gardening and plants. My wife has been kind of obsessed. We, we have a garden where we're growing some herbs and vegetables and stuff, but then it started to grow when we had more pots and things. And, and recently she's like, hey, we should get a hydrangea. And I was like, no, I don't want no shrubs. She didn't actually ask for a hydrangea, I just, I needed that for the sake of the joke. Anyway. Hey everyone, Devin Boger here, and you're listening to The Wildlife, a podcast from two brothers that explores nature's untold stories and wild secrets, and the lives of the people who study them. You know what this is? It's episode 60. Episode 60, without Ryan Reynolds as a guest, we just want to, you know, compare and contrast Hugh Jackman's Wolverine with that of actual real-life wild wolverines. And who better than you, Ryan? So, if you're hearing this, you know, you just uh, just hit us up. It'll only take like an hour. We can make fun of Hugh Jackman. It'll be great. Before we get into it, big shout-out and I love you to our patrons at patreon.com slash thewildlife, our other half of the symbiotic relationship that is us. So, the biggest of thank yous to Andrea Lloyd, Chris Trankel, Angela Seibert, Bridget Fitzgerald, Christina Boker, Maria Hancox, Matt Capel, Megan Gariani, Mike Henry, Vikram Baliga, Whitney Vanivier, Zach Stednick, Gabriel Linsky-Kimiak, Kim Drolet, Karen Bergman, Terry Peterson, and Charlie Rodriguez. We could not do this without you. Also, any of you who uh, are listening right now on a platform where you can leave a review or rating, oh my gosh, like I can't even begin to tell you how helpful it is. Not only does it tell us, are we on the right track? Do we need to change something? Are we doing the kinds of things that you're hoping that we will do? Are we, are we moving in the direction that you're hoping that the show will move? Um, it also helps our visibility and it helps us to move up in different rankings, especially on Apple Podcasts. That is so important for our show. Right now, we're only one rating away from 30, which is our threshold for releasing our bonus episode we recorded actually this week, about uh, the nature of spicy, in which Richard and I severely harm ourselves on a variety of spicy foods throughout the course of the uh, little bonus shindig there. I actually passed out. At one point, I was uh, chasing Richard down the road to to try to get him to eat some ghost pepper sauce and a piece of bread. It was a whole thing. A couple of weeks back, I had the opportunity to sit down with today's guest, for a crossover of sorts. He was interviewing me for his show, and I was interviewing him. And uh, on my end, I had a very specific reason. See, here's the thing. Okay. It, things, yep, okay, it's recording. Earlier this year, when, and when we were making that garden I, I was joking about a minute ago, there's a point where my wife had, had a pumpkin seed. It was just an extra pumpkin seed, and she was just like, eh, and kind of tossed it outside. And we have this patio on our back porch. I'll, I'll have to post a picture of this. <laughs> that was a that was a bumblebee kicking pollen into its back pockets. That was kind of cool. Okay. Um, Where the seed, I guess, landed underneath it, and it was forgotten. Then a few weeks later, there was a plant growing out of that very spot. And then it got bigger, and bigger, and bigger, and now, (laughs) 
16 by 24 with 20, 21 pumpkins? Yeah, 21 pumpkins. Two of them are very orange. It's huge. But that, that alone isn't necessarily the reason for us wanting to talk to today's guest. It's a question that came up, well, that my wife asked. So, I'm confused because I've taken biology in high school, I took a class in college, and like, I teach a class where I help tutor kids in that, and okay, so what I understand is that when, when a plant like makes a flower, there's like female and male flowers and it's just like you know animals you know um and so they like I'm obviously confused right now but okay so the flowers open and then like a bee or something will be like oh look at this and like they'll take the pollen from the delicious male flower and then they'll fly over to some other plant and then they'll put their the pollen will kind of like drip off of them, you know, into this female plant. And then that's how you make a fruit, which then makes seeds. Okay, but then here's my other question. Well, my question to begin with, what if like your pumpkin plant, my, so like I have a pumpkin plant. Um, it made fruit before any pumpkin plants anywhere else in my neighborhood that I saw made fruit, okay? So how, is there some random pumpkin plant 20 miles away um, or can they do that to themselves? And if they can do that to themselves, don't you need like diversity? You know, like if the same plant continues to fertilize itself over and over again, like doesn't it eventually get like weird genetic issues or are plants different? I don't know, man. I also don't know how to stop this. <laughs> if you haven't figured it out already, today's guest is none other than Vikram Baliga of Planthropology. He's also a research associate and greenhouse manager at Texas Tech University, a horticulture expert and an all-around fantastic dude with great taste in food, from what I can gather. Also, some really great nighttime photography shots, especially the Milky Way and some sunflowers. You, you gotta check it out. If you don't listen to Planthropology, you need to. Our conversation spans the birds and the bees, urban agriculture, water conservation, parking lots, forest cities, rooftop gardens, sustainability, and so much more. So go outside, Nestle down in some leaves, get in touch with your roots, and do some human photosynthesis, and that is the synthesis of vitamin D, I should say, while you listen to our conversation with the one and only Vikram Baliga. Obviously, the first thing that I want to talk to you about above anything else is you and 
Planthropology. Okay. You know, what is your What has your journey been like? When did you have that idea? Uh, so I've I've had quite an interesting journey to get to I guess where I am. Um, mm-hmm. I started off like I got into horticulture when I was a kid, right? Like growing up mm-hmm. with my grandparents, uh, my granddad and I were always gardening. We grew a garden every year, and so that's you know that's where my love of plants and nature came from. He would always bring home turtles and you know just whatever else he found. Like he was he loved animals, he loved nature, and so that we would spend time in the mountains. We'd spend time in the backyard and. Then, you know, through high school, I was convinced I wanted to be an engineer and a medical doctor and blah, blah, blah. And so I yeah. did a year of that in college and hated every second of it. And so <laughs> uh, switched over to horticulture. Um, my undergrad is in landscape design, actually. So I'm, mm-hmm. I have a, a Bachelor of Arts in landscape design. And then I uh, studied olive trees for my master's and then water conservation for my PhD. And so I've kind of done uh, a wide variety of uh, things in the field, I guess. Um, As far as the podcast goes, so I guess, so I've been in this position that I'm in now, uh, managing this teaching and research greenhouse at Texas Tech for, gosh, about two and a half years. Hmm. And so at the beginning of... I'm trying to see I'm getting my timelines messed up. It like time just doesn't mean anything anymore. <laughs> um, at the beginning of last year, so 2019, um, a friend and I were talking just about nerdy plant stuff, you know, like we do. Yeah. And uh, I was like, I the thought popped into my head. I was like, man, this would make a good podcast. Like, I think yeah, uh, even non-plant nerds would think some of this is interesting. And we, you know, I think you have that conversation all like, oh, I'm going to start a podcast, ha, ha, ha. And then you laugh <laughs> it off and kind of move on with your life. And so I actually came up with the name then, Planthropology, which is like the anthropology of plants, the human connection to nature and the environment. Because we were mm-hmm. talking about how indigenous peoples in our um, uh, area, the Taya Nation, mm-hmm. uh, were very actually sophisticated based on the technology they had with the way they ran the herds of buffalo and bison through this area and other game um, using fire. And they would do, you know, burns in different directions to move herds and uh, to manage the land around them. And so uh, we were talking about how they, uh, the the peoples of that time got unfairly characterized as just, you know, kind of existing and, you know, being around, but they, they knew what they were doing. They understood the land. They understood how to make the land do what they needed to do while yeah. still having kind of a minimal impact, um, which mm-hmm. is something we've forgotten, you know, over the years. Yeah. And um, so I was like, man, just this this anthropological connection to the environment is really interesting to me. And so that's kind of where the name came from. And then I kind of put it away. And then my mm-hmm. uh, wife introduced me, who's my wife's also a science educator. Um, she introduced me to the Ologies podcast uh, mm. soon after that. And their uh, Allie Ward's take on science communication was so different than anything I'd heard before, um, where she Mm -hmm. really dove into the person that she was um, interviewing. And I started thinking about, you know, this could actually work. This could actually be a thing that people would listen to and like to hear. And so, yeah, uh, I just kind of started it um, and didn't tell anyone. And and I didn't get fired for it, which was cool. And, uh, (laughs) Uh, it's kind of grown from there. It's been a, it's been quite a ride. It's, it's a great show. I mean, like really, I think, I think really truly my favorite part of other than, other than your personality and the way that you 
interact with people and your delivery and stuff on the show, I, it, it's that human component that it isn't just straight, dry science. It's it's very much kind of it's it's like people centered and not people centered at the same time. But it, it makes for a really just lighthearted. It, it feels like you can feel a connection. And especially in this time of, you know, COVID and distance and everything like that, it's it's been a, a nice thing to uh, to listen to. Well, man, I, I really appreciate the the kind words there, and because that's what we're going for. It's like, um, you know, I think the story we don't tell our students enough. You know, I'm I'm a college yeah. educator. The story we mm-hmm. don't tell our students enough is that you can pursue all these science things, and then in 15 years still be a real human being who loves your job and is passionate about what you're doing. Because we we do great about the the education part. You know, filling, mm-hmm. giving them the knowledge they need and the tools to apply that knowledge to their lives. But sometimes we leave the story there, unfortunately, and just say, okay, yeah. here's your information, go figure it out. But it, it, which is hard, right? I remember being 22 years old and with my college degree in hand and no idea what to do with it. Mm-hmm. And, and so yeah. I just wanted to paint the picture of, you know, you can be 20 years down the road, 30 years down the road in your career and still really care about the things that you studied. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's a there's definitely a major element of that in in I I, I kind of hesitate to say science communication as a whole, but culturally, I I think I think maybe that started a shift with you know like Carl Sagan was an exception and and Bill Nye was an exception, sure. And um, but typically, like the way that science has been communicated, at least to the public at large, is usually through a reporter on the news, um, or some kind of vague there's no person behind it. It's just like, here's your facts. And then, and people aren't understanding the process. People don't understand the people. And, and there's almost this perception of like, you know, Oh, scientists are just these elite robots who don't really have any human component to them. And so to learn that, you know, there's a scientist in the field for 20 years, who's obsessed with Battlestar Galactica and uh, (laughs) LARPs in their free time. Yeah. It's like, (laughs) awesome. That's, that's cool. I mean, they're real people. Well, and I think that's something that y'all do really well on your show too is, you know, you've interviewed some really awesome scientists and some really awesome people, but you keep it funny and you keep it fun. And I, again, I think that um, this whole idea of of breaking down the ivory tower or the concept of the ivory tower is something mm-hmm. that like people like you and I with the platforms that we have can do. And we can yeah. start to connect people back to the science without it just feeling stuffy, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, what about you? I mean, in terms of connecting the science, I mean, when did that really start for you? I mean, again, at at a young age, I um, I loved nature growing up, and mm. then getting into school, I I just found that like I I I think I'm pretty I'm I'm kind of a generalist in the way I approach life. I think in general, and I try to yeah. I try a little bit of everything. Like I love music, yeah. I love literature, I love um. Uh, some of the, I, like I'm a, I'm a woodworker and I do other mm-hmm. stuff that's like less sciencey so to speak but yeah. I found going through school that science was really just what got me excited and whether it was physics or chemistry or biology I struggled with I'll, I'll be honest I struggled through chemistry a little bit <laughs> that was not my Same. favorite thing <laughs> uh, but like I loved physics and I loved biology and yeah. um, I, I found that it was I don't, I'm trying to think of how, how the best way to say it. 
Mm-hmm. I've always thought that that science and the study of science was the best way to tell the story of our universe. Um, yeah. Because there's so much to unravel and there's so much to um, kind of pull apart in in nature and in in everything that we kind of perceive. And and I think at heart I'm a storyteller and I always wanted to be a storyteller. But the story I want to tell is about everything that's around us. And uh, mm-hmm. science is the way to do that, in my opinion. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. I mean, one of the one of the key components of being able to tell a story is to figure out how a good story works. And what better story than evolution and everything else that has occurred just by chance? Yeah, and the chaos that is, and and dissecting that story and figuring out its components and figuring out how to put it back together in a in a new way that makes sense to people. I mean, it's that's the best. It's pretty exciting. Pretty exciting. Yeah. Um, so when, when plants, I mean, when did that end up becoming your kind of focus? So I think after I decided that engineering was not for me, uh, because mm-hmm. I hate calculus. <laughs> um, so I, I interned with a doctor, um, for a summer after my first year in college, I was, I was studying biomedical engineering. I wanted to go into med school, whatever. Mm-hmm. And the first time, like I almost passed out when they were doing just like a simple procedure, uh, I was, I was like, oh, maybe this is not for me. And, uh, so I was like blood and calculus are maybe not my things. And mm-hmm. so I was like, okay, kind of back to the drawing board. And I, I went and, you know, I'd, I'd put a year of my life into this. I'm 19 years old. And I think it being, being 19 and feeling like you have already like completely lost your path in life is totally <laughs> terrifying. Right. Yeah. Cause you're still a kid at that point. Like you don't. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and to all my college students out there listening, I'm sorry for this, but at 19, I didn't know anything about anything. I really didn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and so I went to a general studies advisor and I was just like, I don't know what to do. And they were like, well, okay, what do you like? And I kind of went back to, well, I like plants. You know, I like growing things. I like food and I like landscapes and all that. So they're like, have you thought about horticulture? And so I kind of got into that and uh, finished out my undergrad in in horticulture, and I've kind of I've been hooked ever since. Um, mm-hmm. It's definitely, uh, you know, people don't get into horticulture to be rich and famous, um, but I'm passionate about it. I love it, and and it's something that I I don't see myself ever doing anything different than what I'm doing right now, as far as just like loving plants and talking about plants and and telling people about nature, however I can, you know. Yeah. What are the main things that you're focused on right now? So I just finished up my PhD and, uh, mm-hmm. or I'm finishing up. I fin- I defended a couple weeks ago and I'm yeah. uh, finishing writing my dissertation right or finishing editing my dissertation right now. Um, so that was uh, water conservation. Mm-hmm. My whole PhD was in water conservation. And that's, um, I worked with the extension service uh, for, and for those of you that don't, out there who don't know what the extension service is, it's it's essentially just the like public education, community education wing of a research university, of a land grant research university. So in in Texas, that's through Texas A and M. And um, I worked as a county horticulture agent um, or community educator in horticulture for four years. Mm-hmm. And one of my main focuses was water conservation because here where I live in in the South Plains of Texas. 
um, which so we're on the southern high plains, bottom of the Ogallala Aquifer, and it's dry and it's hot and it's windy, and we're concerned about our water resources lasting, you know, two or three more generations, and so mm-hmm. that's a major area of focus. So water is always something I talk about, but also local foods um, are something that I'm really passionate about, and mm-hmm. um, I, when I say local foods, I don't just mean like grow two tomatoes in your backyard and take them to the farmer's market, which that's fine. That's part of it. But um, the the nutritional advantages to locally grown produce um, and produce that gets to, to ripen on the plant longer, um, to the impact it can have on a local economy, to the perceptions about food that we can change through some sort of this local food market. All of that is wrapped up in something that I'm really interested in. So, um. Something that's kind of unique, I think, is our department here at Texas Tech just inherited a community garden here in Lubbock. Oh, cool. So there's um, in the middle of an older neighborhood in Lubbock um, called the Heart of Lubbock, there's this double lot that um, the the woman that owned it, or yeah, owned it, um, kind of gave it to the, the Neighborhood Association and Community Garden. So they've been running a community garden there for six or seven years, and it's been one of the our success stories in... Uh, local success stories in these kind of efforts. Um, and so the owner of the land uh, is is older, and she wanted to make sure that the land long-term was kind of taken care of, so she donated it to our department. So we're kind of working with that neighborhood group to keep this uh, community garden going and to work some research and teaching and uh, other opportunities into it. So um, sort of this community-level local food production and and food security thing uh, is somewhere that I think I'll be working in in some way for for quite a few years. No, that's that's um, really interesting stuff. I, I I have a book in my stack of books to read. <laughs> that is, I'm I'm looking for it right now. I actually thought I had it by me. I think it was called the Green Revolution. Maybe. Yeah. That, yeah. I that might be wrong right. on the title. Yeah. Uh, about kind of urban urban gardening, urban land, uh, uh, doing community gardening and things and some success stories where that's been implemented in different places. And uh, I've been really looking forward to reading that because we have locally, we've have some community gardens, but I feel like probably highly underutilized. Sure. Very. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel like maybe sometimes I see something growing in them and they seem to be largely just empty areas. And so, you know, trying to figure out how to nurture that and, and get people more involved and see the benefit. Um, is something that I've been really interested in. I just haven't really gotten a chance to dive into. Well, it's certainly a challenge um, for yeah. sure. Because, uh, you know, you, you get people that are really excited about it and, and work on it for a few years and then they move or mm-hmm. their their circumstances change and they can't keep up with it. And um, so w- some of the research we're going to be working in, I think, in the next few years is in, in the sustainability of these efforts and how do you build um, and organize an effort like this so that it stays going for years and years, and how do you, you know, involve community partners and and all of that? So I think that as far as like actual, you know, literature building research, that's a place that's really lacking. Um, yeah. That I think we could have a big impact. So one of the um, speaking of gardens, one of the <laughs> out of the million and a half things I thought of in, in terms of talking to you about, um, something came up in my personal life that where my wife asked a question and I realized, you know what, a lot of people probably have this question. And so this is probably something good to focus on. Um, 
because we had this really odd thing happen. So I, I built a raised bed garden in our backyard and it's been fairly successful. We've had some other stuff. I mean, even my son, who's four, like planted corn and it, he, funny enough, he planted it in like an above ground planter box and it's still like five feet tall. <laughs> and I'm like, I, how are you even doing this? Um, but my wife had, had taken an extra pumpkin seed and didn't know what to do with it. She just kind of tossed it outside and it landed under our patio. And maybe two weeks later, we noticed that there was a little green coming out. We weren't really sure. Like, we didn't know it was the pumpkin at the time because we had kind of forgotten about it. Mm -hmm. And before you knew it, it exploded. And right now, um, it's now through our fence on one side, maybe six feet. It's cut off our staircase so we can no longer leave through one door of the house. <laughs> it's into our yard. So it's, it's covering an area that's probably 50 by seven feet. And starting to grow pumpkins like crazy. And we're like, okay, this fall, I mean, we're going to be set, assuming we can keep this thing alive. Um, but one of the things that had happened was, so so before the pumpkin started growing or anything, um, and the flowers were starting to bloom and things, my wife had said, well, wait, if there's not another pumpkin plant around, how does it get fertilized? And I was like, that's a really interesting, good question. I'm glad you asked. And... Then I remembered, wait, I actually don't remember either. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to think back to, um, I, I, in college, I took a plant biology course and uh, I, I did a practicum in a greenhouse. And then, of course, I teach biology. And so it should have hit me a lot quicker, but it took me a few minutes to try to try to re actually remember the details. Um, but it's it's been a really interesting uh, experience going out there and, and watching all of the different stages and watching how... Now the bees are present and how that's playing a role. And so, so I guess, um, in, in a, in a way that's, that's what I would like to talk about. Okay. Um, sort of the birds and the bees of plants, how that works. How is it that if you have one pumpkin plant, it can still manage to grow pumpkins and be a thriving beast that's overtaking my house. <laughs> and I guess starting with that is, um, you know, seeds and spores and cones. I mean, what are those? <laughs> yeah, so it is surprisingly complicated, right? Yeah. Um, so so the development of seeds was a long process. I mean, obviously, mm -hmm. like anything else in evolution, it 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 take took a lot of time. So um, spores were kind of first, and as plants moved from, you know, algae and other unicellular photosynthetic organisms in the water onto land, um. One of the first reproductive methods was spores, which are, you know, mm -hmm. unicellular, just little genetic packages that will plop somewhere. If there's enough water, they'll fertilize, germinate, you get a new plant. So that was like very, very early seeds um, mm -hmm. or or I don't want to say seeds because they're not seeds, but but that was an early means of plant reproduction. Let's say it that way. Um, sure. And then as these plants moved on to the land it turned out that these spores that needed high um high amounts of water and moisture to germinate maybe weren't going to do so well right so yeah as taller plants and early um conifers and gymnosperms de developed so there was a a stage of plant life called pro gymnosperms and so like proto gymnosperms mm -hmm. and they would actually set male and female spores on the same plant um now 
I, I don't want people, I, mean, I think it's important to understand that we call them male and female. It's not exactly the same as in animals, but, you know, they do kind of have this um, uh, dimorphism in their in their gametes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so we have the, the male spores, the female spores, and they would fall off the tree, the tree would shed them, and if they happened to land close enough to each other, you would get germination and you would get a new plant. Um, and that was kind of an early form of um, genetic recombination. Mm-hmm. Whereas before, maybe it was you were waiting on a mutation. You were waiting on some kind of a uh, an escape or something like that to get new genetic material. Um, you got, you know, pretty or, or more modern genetic recombination in plants. And so your diversity started to increase. Um, from that... Uh, uh, gymnosperms d- developed where you would have um, essentially male or uh, like, you know, it'd be like pollen, right? You would have pollen cones and, and seed cones. They would uh, be fertilized on the plant. The cones would open, seeds would drop out. And so I would think of our true seeds, um, our gymnosperms are the first varieties, right? The first examples um, where you would have pine cones that would, or I say pine cones, but con- conifers and, and cones mm-hmm. on plants that would develop seed, drop them, um, they would get spread by wildlife or whatever else um, by the wind. But but normally at this time, I think a lot of the germination was happening in the immediate area around the plant. So you weren't sure. getting much seed dispersal. Yeah. Um, and then from there, our angiosperms developed and evolved. And that was when life really started to move and explode because... What angiosperms do is they set a flower. So angiosperms are our flowering plants. And Mm -hmm. they develop a fruit that something wants to eat. And the seeds are inside the fruit. So animals would come and pick a a pumpkin or, um, you know, whatever an early version of a pumpkin was, early cucurbit, uh, or uh, another fruit. They would eat it. They would do what animals do wherever animals go. And they would spread this genetic material. So in terms of, like, big giant increases in diversity um like the development of separate male and female gametes and plants and the development of flowers really made the populations and the diversity explode and move a lot and so um it's for me it's really fascinating because it's this long term you know 300 million year process of going from uh (laughs) algae to uh, a pumpkin plant that's you know, taking over your life right now. <laughs> our, our spores, I mean, I'm trying to think of something analogous, um, not like it's completely necessary, but are they, would you th- say that they are comparable to like gimules and like sponges? And yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's a good, um, probably a good representation. And, you know, it's again, it's not exactly the same, but you kind of develop this little polyp and it, it, it is essentially, clonal material you do get some variation in there but yeah it's it's very similar to something like that sure okay okay and we still see it on modern ferns and stuff like that uh oh yeah yeah one of my uh favorite accidental happenstances was we had a a fern that started and i'm gonna blank on what they're called but it 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 started to get those little clusters on the bottom side um what are they called i can't remember uh, and I was looking at it under like this little handheld microscope I had, and I could actually watch where it was drying out from the light shining on it, and it was slingshotting spores. It's fascinating, isn't it? It's just crazy. Yeah. It was just so cool to see, and then and then to um, 
start to think about how that works. I mean, it's, you know, it looks like something's throwing something or slingshotting, but it's just, you know, these little packets of moisture that are drying up. So as it's drying up, it's curling back and then boom, it just snaps. And I'm just like, that is, that is amazing. Like plants, you don't get the credit that you deserve. Well, and there's, so there's one tree called, um, they, it has a, a few different names, but one of the names is the dynamite tree. So it has these big, weird, spiky fruit. The trunk of the tree is totally covered in spines. It's really angry looking. And it it will drop these these fruits off of the plant. And when they hit the ground, they essentially explode. And they eject seeds at something like 150 miles per hour. Oh, like geez. you can find like videos on YouTube of people hitting them with hammers and stuff, trying to get them to explode. And I mean, it's, it really like, it sounds like a little bomb going off and it, <laughs> that's how they disperse their seeds. That is just crazy to think. So I have a, I have a question. So fruit, I mean, you said fruit, it's, you know, it, it's something that something wants to eat and then thereby will end up spreading the seeds. I mean, so how did fruit come about and exactly what is fruit? So a fruit is essentially the ripened ovary of a female flower, right? Okay. So um, the part that we eat is, is, I mean, it's just kind of this expanded ovary. So you get all these mm-hmm. different parts of your flower, your, um, oh God, hang on. Let me pull up names real quick. My brain just totally <laughs> went blank and I don't want to say the wrong thing. Um, it's funny because like I, I've studied this stuff for, you know, a very long time. Um, and then every now and then my brain is just like, Nope, you're not going to remember oh, this today. Like, so, well, well, <laughs> like during my, my comprehensive exams, I definitely forgot what photosynthesis was. They were like, it was, <laughs> they threw me like an, an underhand pitch and I was just like, I whiffed hard anyway. <laughs> so, okay. So essentially you get, you have two reproductive structures in flowers. You have the pistol, which is the, the stigma style and ovary. And there's some mm-hmm. other little parts in there. That's your female reproductive structure. And then okay. you have the stamen, uh, which is the male re- reproductive structure, and okay. which is made up of the anther, which holds the pollen, and the filament that connects it back to the plant. So mm-hmm. flowers will have either all of these parts or some combination of these parts. So there are perfect flowers that can essentially self-pollinate, right? They have both male and female um, reproductive organs on the same flower so like peach trees are a great example of this they are perfect we call them perfect flowers they have all the parts they need and so one single peach tree will self-pollinate and you can get peaches Mm -hmm. um there are benefits to cross-pollination so if you have two different trees and bees like take pollen from one plant put on another plant this whole process um you get crop increases so so in peaches you may get like 20 or 30 percent increases in yield uh, oh, through wow. pollination, you get better fruit quality, etc. So pollination is still important, but those plants can kind of pollinate themselves, um, or each flower can technically pollinate itself. Um, that's not ideal though, because you want cross pollination, you want that spread and that recombination of genes. Mm-hmm. Um, so some flowers, like your pumpkin, for example, have distinctly male and distinctly f- female flowers on the same plant. So you'll get both male and female flowers. Um, and what you'll see is if you look at a female flower um, on a cucurbit, cucurbits are great examples. So that's like your squash, cucumbers, uh, melons, pumpkins, everything in that family. Mm-hmm. You can tell a female flower pretty easily because it'll look like it has a little baby whatever, pumpkin or cucumber or whatever on the base of the flower. And then your mm-hmm. male flowers don't. 
So we used to teach a lab here where we had our students uh, pollinate cucumbers. And so they would go in with a paintbrush and dust pollen off of the male flowers and dust it onto the female flowers and just watch (laughs) the development of cucumbers. Um, So in some cases, you can have a single plant like your pumpkin that's hanging out under your deck or whatever. And uh, all of a sudden, it is taking over your life and totally eating your backyard (laughs) and putting on pumpkins with just the single plant. Um, but there are a lot of plants that are either distinctly male or distinctly female. We see this a lot in fruit trees. Um, mm-hmm. And so you have to have one of each to, to set fruit. And so is that going to be, I guess for uh, just a, a clarification, so is that going to be flower dependent? So you'll have, so maybe one tree and then some of the flowers are male and female, or is it possible to have like a tree where they're all male flowers? Yeah, exactly. So then- in, in a lot of our fruit trees, we get... Um, one tree that they're all male flowers and one tree that they're all female flowers. Um, So sometimes there's varieties of trees that will be one or the other, right? They'll have either both flowers on the same tree or separate trees with the male and female. Um, But you see it a lot in, uh, I'm trying to think of a good example. Um, Cherries are a really good example where you need Mm -hmm. cross-pollination. You'll get uh, distinctly male trees and distinctly female trees. So you have to have one of each. Um, hmm. to, to set cherries. Um, and only the female trees will um, um, put cherries on. So this is an interesting thing to talk about, actually. And, and it's a, a point that comes up every now and then in, in different ways. But um, a lot of times um, people will plant, like, so city managers, when you're planting trees, they'll mm-hmm. either plant male or female trees. And there's kind of some potential drawbacks to both right so in places where they don't want a lot of fruit dropping on the sidewalk or on cars or whatever they'll just plant male trees and they won't plant any female trees because you don't get that fruit drop um but then you have to deal with the pollen right and so uh like a male tree sheds pollen and so if you line your streets with male trees they will shed pollen all spring and they'll cover your cars and everyone's allergies go crazy Mm-hmm. Um, real great example is in the Austin, Texas area. Um, they have lots of cedar trees and they're, those are male or female and they're wild. It's not like someone planted all these. And yeah. during the spring, if it's a little bit windy, you can literally see yellow clouds of pollen, like floating around Austin, Texas. And just wa- looking at the, just even just looking at the picture makes me sneeze. Like yeah. it's, it's bad. Oh, <laughs> I, I, re- I remember that. I remember I remember in uh, when I lived in Cyprus during high school. Oh yeah, uh, going out and going out to my car to to drive to school in the morning, and it was yellow. Like it looked like it was a dusting of snow, but my whole car was just yellow. And it was a black car, and it was yellow. And I'm like, oh god. Yeah. No. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to clean it off, and then it, you know, and then the hard part is, is oh, if there's any dew. Oh, any condensation, it just smears everywhere and it doesn't. And you're just like, oh, no. (laughs) Um, But yeah, my my house there, I mean, that was particularly bad. Not so much that our our neighbors, you know, as bad, but like it just dumped in our yard. Yeah, it was crazy. Yeah. And so so it is an interesting thing. And I remember I was on a radio show um, several years ago when I was still with Extension and I was we were talking about this. And I, I feel like I just totally blew this radio host's mind. When I told them there were male trees and female trees, they're like, we never, like, you just have a tree and you get fruit, right? I'm like, no, it's a little more complicated than that. So how do, I mean, 
how would you know then? You know, say you're a city manager and you're like, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to plant some trees that this looks like a male here. Like how, how do you make that distinction? It is hard to tell until they flower. Um, they're, they're pretty much identical until they flower. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, once they flower though, you can actually pull the flowers off and look for those different plant parts. And so some nurseries will do that legwork for you, right? So if you want to purchase a whole bunch of male trees, they'll have grown those trees out for a few years and Mm -hmm. can tag the male or female or whatever. But yeah, until the, until those flowers develop, you're, you're just, you're guessing, you know, (laughs) you're doing Mm -hmm. your best and. Um, I, I, you know, personally, that's not something I would worry about. I think you just plant. So one, one big thing that I'm interested in is multiple purposes in the landscape. I'm a big proponent of this multi-use landscape where you use fruiting plants as landscape plants, um, Mm -hmm. and fruiting trees as street trees. I think that there's maybe some, well, not some, there are a lot of like, social and political issues that go into this right but yeah. for me if i'm going out and planting trees i want people to be able to walk by and pick a pair you know yeah, that'd be amazing i want a source of free publicly available fruit that people can go and just grab um they do yeah. this in tucson and a few other places where their street trees are oranges and different kinds of fruits and people just pick them and they have them and so you know from a plant management standpoint yeah okay maybe it makes a mess but we can use our space that we have available we're not we're not getting more space right like Mm -hmm. the world's urbanizing so it's not like we're going to get more land to grow crops and grow food for people and we're going to have a lot of hungry people that we need to figure out how to feed we already do have a lot Mm -hmm. of hungry people that we have to feed so my whole thing is yeah have a pretty landscape have a beautiful tree um in that little tree well outside of your business whatever but if it also like flowers and then produces fruit i see that as a net positive for society yeah Um, so yeah uh, yeah, i'm i'm all about the multi-purpose landscape yeah you know there's a there's a time in college where and it's honestly still kind of like this weird obsession it actually came up yesterday my wife and i were at the store and then we were in the parking lot and i just started going off about it where i was obsessed with the idea of rethinking parking lots Mm -hmm. and how we could use them and uh and i know so at the store you know where they had the pickup for groceries there was a canopy and i'm like why don't they have you know these like white topped so they're reflecting heat you know canopies across the parking lot um or 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 you know in these medians you know plant fruiting trees you know like there, there could be so many other things that so other than just having completely flat concrete space that you could do that's you know reducing urban heating um um you could align them with solar panels so you're helping to power the, the store and lighting in the parking lots you could use the green space so rather than it being a five foot wide stretch of concrete that extends you know as a median between you know two sides of the parking lot all the way down for 600 feet i mean that could be lined with trees and fruiting trees and you know what's what's up with that it just seems like We have so much potential in that area. We do for sure. And I think, you know, from that to rooftop gardens and cities to, to all kinds of stuff. And, you know, you, you brought up the urban heating effect and that's such a big deal. You know, that's a major contributor to climate change is this urban heat Island effect because, Mm -hmm. sorry, let me ignore this call. Um, so that's a major contributor to climate change because, uh, you know, we talk about things like des- desertification and changes in rain- rainfall patterns, yeah. and the hotter it gets, the hotter it gets. And so, mm-hmm. if 
if there's a way we can, um, yeah, do things like those street trees that you're talking about or those parking lot trees that we're talking about and yeah. um, break up some of that massive just just heat island, concrete island, that's that's a big deal. Um, so at Texas A&M, on top, I, th- I want to say it's their physics building, their newer physics building, which, you know, mm-hmm. I say new. It was new when I was in college, so it's 12 years old at this point. But um, they they developed it to have a rooftop garden. And it's actually pretty mm-hmm. nice. People go up there and study. They've got, I think, mostly ornamentals, but they have some vegetables. But they irrigate it with condensate from the AC unit on the building. They light it oh, with wow. solar lighting. And so, gosh, things like that just tell me that we can be so much more efficient um, yeah. and deal with so much less waste um, mm-hmm. than we do right now. Mm-hmm. It's it's kind of one of those things that one of my other obsessions, because I'm, I'm very much a cannot focus on any particular one interest um biomimicry in terms of engineering yeah blows my mind and i i'm obsessed with it and you know when you look across nature there's very little waste i mean things get used i mean there's dung beetles for goodness sakes um (laughs) like everything has a use in some manner but then as humans it's like nah (laughs) we're just gonna put that in a pile like we don't need that anymore and kind of just forget about it and it's like the amount of repurposing and recycling and, and, and reusing and, you know, I mean, goodness, using water condensation from AC to, to irrigate plants. I mean, that's, that's a perfect example. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we just, you know, we, we, we've gotten into this like societal rut where everything has to be like, you know, we're, we're not good at living with nature. It's like, we, we look at nature as something that you have to go do. Right. Like yeah. you live in your city, your house, your your city's pristine, your house yeah. is pristine. Oh, but then I'll go drive to the mountains and we talk about how wonderful it is when we could have mm-hmm. the best of both worlds. Right. We could be <laughs> designing our cities to include nature uh, yeah. and, and working with the environment instead of keeping it as like an attraction that you go see. It could be part of our everyday lives. And we just don't live that way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's definitely one of our one of our goals. I mean, we're doing a lot more community programs and stuff in terms of helping people to see the nature that's right in front of them and understanding that nature isn't something that you have to go do or go see. It's literally right here, yeah. right outside. The pumpkin in my yard is sparking a conversation about how in the world is it that this happens in the first place. I mean, it, it's it truly is everywhere, and um, you know, on on that on that. Uh, Something I, something I just saw too in the news. I'm thinking about you know back back home in Houston. Um, there was an opinion piece published talking about how uh, how desperately they need to be um, incorporating native plants back into bayous and and uh, waterways and things to to reduce flooding risk. That, that urban flooding risk yeah and um it's kind of funny so you go in and you take things out and then later you realize actually <laughs> oh, we, you know what that would have been actually nice to have <laughs> yeah we needed that <laughs> yeah yeah whoops um i mean imagine if you're you know a surgeon and you did that i mean it wouldn't wouldn't go particularly well oops it took the appendix oh yeah well, not the appendix is fine but liver oh yeah yeah um, yeah oh wait he, he needed that so you know another great example of that is up here where i live um most of our groundwater recharge comes through these playa lakes which are you know seasonal um sandy bottom depressions um so when it rains they fill up with water that water goes down because of the, the ground structure below them 
That's how mm-hmm. water ends up back in the aquifer. Um, well, we have a Walmart here in, in Lubbock that the parking lot floods constantly. Not as much mm-hmm. anymore. But for years, everyone would talk about this this Walmart, and it would rain, and the parking lot would flood. Well, it's because they put it on top of a Playa Lake, right? And so that's where the water wants to run into, so it can end up back in the aquifer. I, you know, and mm-hmm. when I say wants to, you, the, there's a whole lot wrapped yeah. up in that. But yeah. that's where the water naturally goes. And so they put yeah. a Walmart on it, and then they had to dig a pond behind the Walmart for that water to drain into. I'm like, you could have just not put it there. You know, like if if we understood the way that the land actually worked, you know, kind of to bring us back to the beginning of the conversation, like the peoples that lived here before us um, did, they understood how the land worked. If we took the time to understand that, like you say, we would not have to go back and remediate everything. We could kind of do it right the first time. Yeah, yeah, completely, completely. Um, This is sort of a, a random loop back. Um, but it, it, it is kind of nagging at me, this, uh, this piece of, in relation to the pollination. Mm-hmm. So I, I understand. Um, so it, it was more asexual stuff in the beginning. Mm-hmm. And so now we have this broader array of things. How, how is it that, I mean, what I can see the benefit in terms of genetics, but of course a plant isn't looking at something in terms of, oh, this is really going to increase my genetic diversity. Um, and so, you know, we're going to split off or or anything like that. How does that come about in such a way that isn't detrimental to have things separate? That's a really good question. So a big thing in plant biology, uh, is, is competition. Mm -hmm. So, so competition between plants is really a limiting factor on how they can grow. So if you get, you know, you're, you're a big tree. And all of your offspring drop directly under the tree, right? There's mm-hmm. a, there's canopy there. There's uh, roots there that are pulling water. Well, that's not great for any of the plants in terms of long-term survival. You get shading competition and competition from light from that first canopy. You get competition from resources from all those other plants being right there under the under the root system or on top of the root system. And over time, that's actually like harmful to the survival of the species, or can be in some cases. But if, say, you know, instead of your seed falling right below you, it Mm -hmm. falls 50 meters down the road, Um, Mm -hmm. then there's enough sunlight, then there's enough water, then there's enough resources for both plants to flourish and reproduce. So when we talk about selection pressure, Plant competition is very direct. Uh, is a very direct selection pressure. So it just worked out that the plants that were a little bit farther away had more access to resources. And so, uh, you know, evolution's complicated. And like, I'm, I'm, I'll admit, I'm not an evolutionary biologist. I'm more of an applied yeah. scientist. But um, when you talk about that, like, resources are what we're all competing for, in one way or yeah. the other. We're all competing for resources. So if you can end up in a place where there's more resources, you're more likely to survive and continue your genetic material. And so over time, um, uh, it turned out that through whatever chance, one of these plants got something that something else wanted to eat, right? Mm -hmm. And then all those seeds got spread out different places. Those seeds were more successful because they had less competition. You ended up with more of these fruits, et cetera, et cetera. And then it just cascades down into this very complex... Uh, uh, pollination system that we have worldwide. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, so I, I actually suppose it makes a certain kind of sense. I mean, normally when we're, we talk competition, we're usually thinking about things in, in the animal realm and individuals against individuals or other populations and things. In a plant, you're talking, at least initially, competition with your own offspring. Yeah. Which, if if you are dropping your seeds and they're starting to grow, but then they all die because you are out competing them or something like that. Well, those genes aren't going to carry on. Exactly. But let's say you have part that ends up 50 feet away and it's able to grow. And then it's dropped something and that part ends up 50 feet away and that's able to grow. You know, you have this inevitable traveling of, of your genetic material. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Uh, that makes sense. And uh, but but it is weird to think about, right? That yeah. uh, you know we we frame things from a a human or an animal standpoint at least. Yes. Uh, and and plants or plants and and again, this is a conversation I've had a couple of times. But plants in some ways are so alien to us because their biology is so different from ours uh, mm-hmm. that we struggle, I think, sometimes to understand. We we just think ah they're just plants they're just there whatever but they're they're incredibly complex like life forms they mm-hmm. just don't do life in the same way that we do necessarily yeah. like the basic building blocks are there but but not necessarily in the same like process and so um, yeah we we think about things like competition very differently I think in in the yeah. plant world than we do in the animal world yeah yeah. Oh, I, I definitely can tell there's more going on with this with this pumpkin because it, it is not stopped surprising me with with the ways. And it's like, how are you finding what you're finding? It's like it, it gravitates towards water somehow. And like, yeah. are, is it vibrations that you're picking up on? Like, how are you doing that? And it just blows my mind. It, and that's, my mind. gosh, and that's so complicated too because you get like looser soil in the direction of water and you talk about like drying gradients and blah, 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 mm-hmm. blah. Gosh, it goes on and on. Um, we have a tree that's. I could get into an argument with some people about whether it's native or not. At some point, that kind of that term kind of loses its meaning yeah. depending on how far back you want to go. There's a tree yeah. called the mesquite that grows everywhere. Ah, yeah. It's na- well naturalized in Texas. We'll say that at the mm-hmm. very least. I would call it a native, but you know whatever. Um, they have been digging wells up in our area and, um, you know, sub basements and stuff. And they found tap roots from these mesquite trees as deep as about 160 feet straight down through caliche and, and rock and sand looking for that water table. And so, uh, they'll punch right through rock looking for water. And it's just so fascinating to me that, um, you know, this little plant that, you know, when it germinates, it's an inch tall, uh, can end up being something like a mesquite that's going to go to, you know, 150 feet straight down or a giant redwood that's going to go 300 feet straight up. And so uh, we have just these incredibly complex biological systems at play here. Yeah, yeah. I, the, the other thing I wanted to ask about, I mean, so I've been like, so pollinators, I mean, there's a lot of talk about pollinators and, and the role that they play. And I don't know that people really understand what pollination is and why pollinators are important. And I know, you know, we, we kind of touched on it on how if you have male and female, I mean, something has to transfer the material between them. Yeah. But I mean, so like, are, for example, bees, yeah. are they saying... Well, not saying, you know what I mean? It happens sometimes. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Stuff. You know, bee lands on a plant. It's like, oh, great, Paul, and I'm going to go drop it off on this other <laughs> flower over here. I mean, like, is, is that is that what's taking place? So I think, okay, so I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to say this so it doesn't sound 
organisms are out for themselves, okay? They mm. are trying to propagate their own species. And it turns mm. out that sometimes we can help each other in that process. So I think a, a bee landing on, on a flower and picking up pollen is not, and, and then transferring it to another flower is not directly for that next flower's benefit, right? It's for the bee's benefit. Mm -hmm. It's trying to pick up more pollen so it can go back and feed its brood. It's trying to feed on nectar and looking for protein sources and all of these things. It just so mm -hmm. happens that the way that bees have evolved to carry pollen is on the outside of their body. And so when they land on another flower, and that it's a co-evolution, right? So the pollen has developed to be sticky, so it sticks to the outside of a bee. Mm -hmm. Um but not so sticky that it won't get deposited on another plant. And so um, it's just this fascinating mutualism and coevolution where both creatures are getting what they need, right? The, the bee is not mm -hmm. necessarily trying to help the flower, and the flower is not necessarily trying to help the bee. It just works out that both of those things get accomplished through the process. Mm -hmm. um, there is it's Cheeto dust. Do what? Cheeto dust. Yeah, exactly. That's what Ex I think exactly. Of, yeah. so you get some Cheeto dust on your fingers, and yeah, you might use some of it, I guess, you know, but uh, touch anything, it's going to end up somewhere. <laughs> um, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 You can pollinate your whole world with Cheeto dust for sure, yep. especially a four year old. Yep. You said you have a four year old too, right? So oh, yeah. uh -huh. you can tell exactly where they've been <laughs> if they've had yep. some Cheetos uh, or yep. chocolate or whatever. Um, there's anything. <laughs> there's the, any, absolutely anything, right? There's a trail of like destruction and food behind them wherever they go. Um, so an, there's an interesting thing I'm um, talking about pollination that bumblebees do called buzz pollination. Mm -hmm. And what they'll do is, so bumblebees are funny, right? They're these big, like fluffy sky pandas that don't look like they're <laughs> very smart, that they're very good at anything. They just kind of lumber around and run into stuff. Yeah. But they're actually in terms of pollinators, highly sophisticated. So they'll hit a flower and they'll land on the, the landing pad of that flower. And based on chemical signaling and all of these things, they know how to release the pollen from those plants. So they've done some studies where the bees will actually vibrate their wings at different frequencies depending on what kind of flower they're on to get it to release the pollen. So if they land on a tomato, they'll buzz at one frequency. If they land on, say, a sunflower they'll buzz at a different frequency to shake that wow. pollen loose based on how that plant holds onto the pollen. And so um, you'll see like, I read a study in a, in a top tier journal um, where the researchers used different kinds of electric toothbrushes to, to, <laughs> to, to simulate buzz pollination um, on different flowers. And they found that there was a statistical difference, right? If you use this kind of buzz pattern, on flower mm -hmm. A or flower B, you get better pollination and better fruit set, et cetera. So oh, that's amazing. It's just so complex. It's so complex. And it's really cool, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really love the the whole, really honestly, everything about this, because it's all just so runaway train chaos. <laughs> it but it ends up working. <laughs> but I think what I think what the listeners should hear or that what we should be thinking about is that because these processes are so complex that they're easy to mess up, right? Life yeah. adapts, but life doesn't necessarily adapt quickly. So mm -hmm. if we're not careful with, which, okay, we are not careful with our climate change, right? Like, <laughs> And if we continue yeah. to not be careful with it, we could lose one link in this chain, in this pollination chain, whether it's bees or um, proper pollen formation because of high temperatures, whatever. 
the whole system breaks down. It's um, it's resilient up to a point, but then if you push it too hard, you can break down that 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 food chain, that whole this whole yeah. thing that keeps us alive, right? Um, yeah. And so we've got to be mindful of that. You know, you asked the question. I don't think I answered your question about why should we care about pollination. Well, if you like to mm-hmm. eat, you should care about pollination because these plants need to be pollinated. Not every plant, but most plants need to be pollinated across two plants to set a fruit. And if you want to eat a fruit, and, and when I say fruit, don't just think apple. Think uh, your lettuce, your because you need more plants, right? So mm-hmm. uh, lettuce, tomatoes, grains, um, everything that goes into everything that we eat or that we feed to the food that we eat uh, comes from this this complex pollination system. And so, yeah, we need to be preserving our pollinators if we want to keep living on this planet. Hey, buddy. <sighs> you see that pumpkin? Look at the bees. Yeah. (laughs) Figured, uh, what better way to end this episode than, uh, by the pumpkin patch. Uh, the, the one that we did not expect, but are happy to have because, wow. It's kind of a cool experience. And seeing how quickly it grows and how how it adjusts and how when you move portions of it 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 self-corrects and watching the bees do their work i mean some of these bees have so much pollen it's like they can't even fly they just hover over the ground it's kind of adorable what do you think oliver Well, anyway, anyway, uh, thank you for listening. Big, big thank you to uh, Vikram Baliga. Again, you need to check out his show, Planthropology. It's, it's a show about plants and plant people and plants and people and everything in between. And it's just, uh, it's a very charismatic, wholesome, good vibe kind of show. And uh, Vikram, I mean... Obviously, it wouldn't be the same without him because it's his show, but, like, after now having listened to quite a few episodes, um, I'm kind of hooked. And uh, I'm happy happy I found it, happy we connected, and uh, seriously, you, you need to support him, support his show. Uh, and if you want to support our show, you can do that at patreon.com slash thewildlife. You can be a monthly member there, get all kinds of merch and perks and community benefits, or one-time donations at paypal.me slash thewildlife. I'm Devin Boker, here with uh, little Oliver, looking at some pumpkins, and this has been The Wildlife. <laughs>